Just a quick heads up, this episode features some explicit language. So if you've got young listeners nearby, maybe put on some headphones. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. It's a um, triple-wide manufactured home. It was put here in 76 by a a guy that made an onion farm here. Mm. The whole farm is, it's 10 acres, it's all irrigated, and he grew onions here. But when Ronnie Bell bought this farm in 2015, he had plans to raise an entirely different stink. His first love is growing cannabis, lots of it. I I don't want to get too far ahead, but it sounds like Anza was pretty much perfect for what you needed. And that was evident by how many people were already out here doing it. Oh, yeah? Tell me more about that. There was probably at least five, 600 farms out here. Wow. You just drive along the road and see them everywhere. I mean, greenhouses and pop fields everywhere. Big fields full of swaying cannabis plants, just growing out in the open. That's what lured Ronnie out to Anza, California. It's a couple of hours southeast of LA in an area that's known as the Inland Empire. The 65-year-old retired from the Postal Service the same year that he bought his onion farm in Anza. He and many of his neighbors grow weed and make their living off of selling it on the illicit market. That has been the way of life in this valley for hundreds of farmers over the last couple of decades. I have a 10-acre farm, 10.2 acres, and I have a compound where the house is mm-hmm. with a fence around it, you know, and I have chickens and stuff. And But the fields, I have about eight acres I could farm if they would let me. They being the sheriff's department. Early on a May morning in 2020, Ronnie awoke and started to get ready for his day. His hired farmhands had already been up for hours, working in the field. I could see them out here in the fields working in the camera and stuff. And and all of a sudden, I seen them all running. And I turned and I looked to my left and I looked out the window. And a, a big black SUV was coming through my gate. He just barreled over it. And there was like 10 other cars behind him. In all the illegal pot fields in all of Riverside County, the sheriff picked that day to raid Ronnie Bell's farm. So I went to the front door and uh, and they had a loudspeaker tell me, come out with my hands up. So I walked out probably 50 yards from my house. I turned around, put my hands on my head and somebody walked out behind me and grabbed one of my arms and twisted it clear up behind my neck. <gasps> and it tore my rotator cuff. Oh, God. And then they threw me in the police car, and I was begging them to let me out, that my shoulder was killing me. And they're like, this is his exact words. I don't give a fuck about your arm. Not only did they leave him injured, but they seized or destroyed about $30,000 worth of equipment, plants, and weed. They left him with a warning. No more cannabis farming, or next time, it will be worse. They took my stuff, and a couple hours, they were gone. The cannabis growers of this valley are breaking the law, for sure, and they have been for decades. But up until recently, these kinds of raids were rare. So what changed? 
Well, weed became legal in California, for starters. Don't worry, I'll explain. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Today, we're taking a look at law enforcement, specifically the way that legalization can take away some types of law enforcement and really ratchet up other kinds. So the average person might be able to breathe easy knowing that they're not going to get arrested for cannabis possession. But every legal state struggles with the same issue, eradicating the illicit market. And that means the kind of tactics that you heard earlier. It's the next installment of our series, Fair Shake, the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Now, why are we doing an episode about a white guy like Ronnie? Well, it's because we've been telling you all season so far about how incredibly exclusive the legal cannabis industry can be. When it's this hard to get in, it means people will find other ways to make money off of it. Right now, California's illicit market is three times the size of its regulated one. One reason is the customer, so to speak, is still more likely to buy their weed from the illicit market, guys like Ronnie. It's about 25% cheaper because of how much legal weed is taxed in California. Ronnie grows some for himself, some to give away to friends, and some to sell to middlemen. Those middlemen turn around and sell to individuals or to illegal dispensaries, which can often appear legit to the average consumer. Another reason for California's thriving illegal market is the state has had two tries at legalization— once in 1996, and again in 2016. So in 1996, voters passed the Compassionate Use Act. And then in 2016, they passed Proposition 64. The Compassionate Use Act legalized medical marijuana, creating the notoriously open-ended sort of wild west of legal weed in California. Under this law, people could form collectives and grow up to 100 plants for themselves and for other patients. Regulations were lax to begin with, and lots of people who thought they were following the law were actually breaking it. So for that reason, enforcement was likewise inconsistent. But Ronnie and his fellow pot-growing neighbors never thought that they were doing anything wrong. I've never robbed anybody. I've never shot nobody. I've never pulled a knife on anybody. You know, all my life I've been an honest, uh, hardworking guy. 20 years in the Marine Corps, I mean, I around the world seven times, you know, forfeited my family and sticking up for my country and going to Afghanistan and Iraq and Kuwait. And then I went another 20 years public service at the post office. I, I worked 40 years and I don't really... You have to deal with the black market marijuana thing, and I just, I don't like it, but I have to. That's the only way that there is now. For two decades, guys like Ronnie could operate more or less in the open, but that's until 2016, when voters approved recreational legalization, otherwise known as Prop 64. Nightmare. Well, so that, that's what I'm curious about, is like, did, is this when all your troubles started? Yes. Since 2016, thanks to Prop 64, there are a lot more regulations and 
local governments have many more tools to get rid of guys like Ronnie. Now, the amount people can grow has decreased considerably. 24 plants is the absolute maximum. Anything over that, and you have to apply for a commercial license. It's worse than before. Why is that? Well, because it leads it up to the county to approve uh, if you can grow or not. Mm -hmm. And they won't approve it at all, period, none. So all of this is to say that Ronnie is a guy who is trying to do the right thing here. Well, at least partially. He's formed a group with his neighbors called the High County Growers Association to lobby for a carve-out in the law. Right now, they say the cost of doing business is so high that only big businesses can afford to get licensed, which leaves small growers like them to die on the vine. So the pot farmers and the county are at a stalemate. Your neighbors, were they all people that were kind of growing since the 90s too? Right, yeah. Been here way longer than me. One, one, one old man, he's 90. Wow. Yeah, he's 90 years old. He has a bigger farm, bigger pot field than mine. Wow. They raided him too, though. Handcuffed him up. It's ridiculous. So now the county has the power to say, if you are not a license holder, you absolutely cannot grow big fields of cannabis. But Ronnie and others have continued to do so in defiance of Sheriff Chad Bianco. The old sheriff, he didn't, if you weren't like getting drunk at night and causing a lot of problems with your neighbor and, you know, then he pretty much left you alone. Mm. There was hardly any raids, maybe 10 a year under the old sheriff. And then this new guy came out with the promise of law and order. And well, you know where he got that from. Mm. And uh, he took it and run with it. Law and order, man. He, he'll come out here and jack you up before you know what happened. Sheriff Bianco was elected in 2018. And one of the promises he made during his campaign was to crack down. Here he is in an interview from that year on a local web show called Bald Guy Red Tie. This was back when Bianco was still a lieutenant. Back then, he was trying to get elected, basically campaigning to replace his boss. All of the marijuana grows in Anza that they're being, the quality of life issues that they have up there are, are sad. Yep. And uh, you feel bad for them. And uh, those are all illegal marijuana grows, and we should be doing something about them. So now, Bianco is doing something about them. He did something about Ronnie's grow last year when his deputies drove an SUV through Ronnie's gate, manhandled him, and threw him in the backseat of a patrol car. They sliced up all my stuff. They did threaten to take me to jail. I said, I'll be out before you get off. Uh? That's what I told him. I'll be bailed out before you get off work. Take me to jail if you want. And he said, no, I'm not taking you today. I was thinking, damn, not again. <laughs> and I said, this is going to cost me out the ass. Yeah. That's all I was thinking, you know. They just, because that's all it does, really. It just, they just put a big financial hit on you. And, you know, they didn't take me to jail. They wrote me a ticket for selling cannabis. After they left, Ronnie called 911 and asked for an ambulance. They put his arm in a sling, and then he drove himself to the hospital. As for Sheriff Chad Bianco, we invited him to sit down for an interview, and we have not heard back. 
But I think there's something really worth underlining here. Bianco has spoken a lot publicly about the discretion he has as a sheriff to enforce certain laws and not others. I mean, earlier you just heard him accusing the previous sheriff of choosing not to do anything about mass marijuana grows. But listen to Bianco talk about another law he doesn't want to enforce. Last year, he became really outspoken about his opposition to California's public health orders, like stay-at-home orders and mask mandates. He was flat out refusing to enforce them and gaining some national attention for it. From the beginning, I told you that I would not be enforcing the stay-at-home order, partly because I trusted our residents' ability to do the right thing. This is him on Fox News, just a couple of days before raiding Ronnie's farm. You know, at the same time, they're trying to force me to release real criminals from jail. They want me to make criminals out of law-abiding citizens that are, you know, trying to support a family. It, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. And as he made the rounds, doing interviews with local and national news shows, you start to get a sense of how much power a county sheriff actually has. I can't morally make a criminal out of someone that is trying to feed their family the, a legal way. And, and Power to decide what to enforce and who to enforce it against. Power to decide who is a criminal and who isn't. He was even asked about that in one of these interviews. Okay, but your job is to enforce the rules. Why do you feel that you can pick and choose which rules to enforce? Well, it isn't, I, I have to make this clear that this isn't just me. This is law enforcement in California uh, since the very beginning of this has said that we will not be uh, enforcing, actively enforcing these orders, the violations of the stay-at-home order. This seems telling, especially since Bianco goes on to complain that the orders are not enforceable because the department doesn't have enough funding. So he's got to make choices, right? And he can either enforce the county's stay-at-home order or he can dedicate who knows how many deputies to raiding a 65-year-old pot farmer. And speaking of money, despite the fact that this raid cost Ronnie thousands of dollars, it doesn't sound like he's about to stop anytime soon, which makes you question how effective these raids really are. It was 14,000 for my two greenhouses. My fence is 1,000, a couple pounds of weeds, another couple thousand. And they took my generator, 1500 I paid for it. So it was probably about a $25,000, $30,000 loss that day. I'm just going to grow $30,000 worth of weed to make up for what they just cost me. <laughs> That's what I do. But this time, it might not be that easy. Or at least, the risk may no longer be worth the reward. See, the sheriff has a few more tricks up his sleeve to keep Ronnie in check. More after the break. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling, and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much.
Welcome back. In May 2020, Riverside County Sheriff's deputies raided Ronnie Bell's pot farm. That whole experience cost Ronnie about $30,000, along with a torn rotator cuff. And these days, his fields don't look nearly as green as they used to. His acres of swaying cannabis plants, which probably, let's be honest, prompted the 911 call that triggered his raid, are now gone. And they're not coming back anytime soon. So you've caught them kind of driving around before? I have actually seen, yeah, on my road. Really? Yeah. What does that look like? Like, are they just slowing down and taking pictures out of the yeah, window? taking pictures, videos, yeah. Videos, ooh. And they don't care either. They do it right in front of you. They don't care if you know who they are. They, they'll holler out the window, I'm turning this in. They being take back Anza. Ronnie's neighbors who don't grow pot and don't think anyone else in Anza should be allowed to either. Never mind the area's history as a marijuana mecca. Oh, definitely. For anyone who's local to the area, they know it's, it's in Anza. This is Stephanie Lai. She's a journalist and student at Columbia University. She's from California and interned for the Los Angeles Times last year. She reported on this conflict playing out in Anza. How would you describe the take-back ANZA folks? What do they want? They see this marijuana cultivation as a burden on their community. Because of the laxness of the area, they see that it brings in foreigners or people who don't live in the community to start a cartel operation in the community. And they see it as bringing in violence, poisoning the water supply, and just all the issues that come with people who move into the area for a seasonal grow period and then leave. So to them, this isn't conducive for a good community environment. I wonder, like, when you were reporting this story, how much evidence you were able to find for these these claims. Right, and it's hard. I think it depends on who you talk to for a lot of it. You could always say that there's evidence of, you know, marijuana growth taking up a lot of the water supply, but you can say the same thing about many other plants. It's also very hard to track this down because a lot of this is underground. I think some of the claims was that, you know, there'd be people brandishing guns on the side of roads before you enter a large grow site. But of course, you can't really fact check all of those instances. It is really hard. The rate of violent crime in Riverside County doesn't track with claims that marijuana grows are magnets for violence. But that's not to say that there hasn't been violent crime in the area associated with pot farms. I think maybe just a couple of months later, Riverside County had one of its largest murders, mass murders, and that involved the shooting of seven people. people were shot and killed at an illegal grow house in the unincorporated unincorporated area that is of Aguanga, that is just east of Temecula. Now, those victims were found in a house right on Highway 371. This is near Stephanie says that shooting took place in September 2020, just four months after Ronnie was raided. And this was, again, you know, marijuana-related. And that's kind of what they see as ANZA being a nexus of marijuana. That's the issues that are associated with it. The seven people killed are all believed to be recent immigrants from Laos. But even at the time, Riverside County's sheriff had attributed it to organized crime. Since then, they've released no further details about the killing, even blocking the release of autopsy reports. As with most, if not all, farm labor in this country, the hard work in this area is often done by undocumented people or recent immigrants. 
I did some follow-up assignments too, where it did seem like this issue is larger than just marijuana growth, but it also is deeply rooted into race and racism. For instance, you know, there is a sizable group of Asian Americans that move into Anza and grow as well, Hispanics, Latinos. There's a lot of diverse faces that move into the community. And for those who have lived in it in a while, you know, anyone who might be of a different skin tone can raise an alarm to some of these residents who kind of subscribe to this belief that Take Back Anza has. And it is a little unsettling to see that, but again, it's it's difficult to separate their concerns with the reality of marijuana cultivation in the community. Most importantly, the sheriff sees no distinction between the marijuana grow where seven grisly murders took place and Ronnie Bell's little old onion farm. So even if there are people who are just trying to grow for themselves or to make a small living, it's hard to separate that from the people that continue to come into Anza. So overall, this just becomes a wider issue than they can handle. Stephanie first learned of this story when she met the district supervisor at the local sheriff's department. So I, you know, was talking to him one day, asked him just about issues that were in the community. And one of them that he mentioned was marijuana cultivation in these unincorporated areas. And a big part of it was that a lot of people wanted to be able to grow legally, but weren't able to. Um, And this was a prevalent issue that he recognized and really emphasized how the sheriff's department is cracking down on it. So for this community, raids have just become a very present part of their day-to-day lives. They even make a joke about it, and they say, watch out for Marijuana Mondays, because that's when the sheriffs come to town. The whole thing has really drawn a line down the middle of this small town. On the one hand, you have Ronnie and his neighbors, who are lobbying for some kind of middle ground that would allow them to grow weed legally to sustain themselves, the High County Growers Association, On the other hand, you have Take Back Anza, the neighbors who do not want cannabis farms in their town. And Stephanie says since it's a small community, a lot of this feuding is playing out over Facebook. But if the sheriff's department comes and breaks down your door, it's likely that a neighbor put in the call. It is very much of, you know, someone noticing marijuana growth in their street and calling, you know, reporting them. And that's difficult to say because there's so many growers, you know, next to each other. But again, there is such a strong opposition in the community where it becomes, you know, a very divisive topic for them and something that inevitably tears them apart. Based on the facts, based on what you were able to find, do you feel like people like Ronnie are being painted with a very broad brush here by saying, you know, like, this bad stuff happens somewhere else, so all marijuana cultivation everywhere is going to invite all of this? Definitely. And it's it's a really sticky issue, as you mentioned. The fact that there is such a large group of people who are willing to advocate for this, they're small farmers, they're just people who live in Anza and, you know, want to grow marijuana. They're not the ones causing these issues, but it is difficult to separate them from the others. And I think because of that, and until the county finds a way to rectify this, it is difficult to see their cause through. Yeah, I think that's what attracted me to this story so much to begin with, is that, like, you don't usually see organized crime people and human traffickers start their own political advocacy organization and lobby people to support their cause. Right, right. And the response to that effort has been kind of antagonistic. Kendall Steinmetz, one of Ronnie's fellow farmers, who is also part of the High County Growers Association, 
says Sheriff Bianco made that clear during a county supervisor's meeting back in 2018. Kendall says at that meeting, the sheriff actually encouraged people to call 911 on farmers. He said, if, if you've got a, a couple hundred to a couple thousand plants, we're not going to get to you this year because there were bigger underground grows going on up here. But what he did say was, to specifically our detractors, our opponents, if you bring forward a complaint, you will get priority. If you're raided and charged, Kendall says the charges rarely stick. But he doesn't feel like that's the point. And that started the people in our valley to start turning in their neighbors for their cultivation, which developed a Hatfield and McCoy reality in our valley where we now got neighbors turning in neighbors and the sheriffs happily complying and showing up finger on the trigger, guns pointed at people for a code violation. Lately, Kendall says tensions run high in Anza when one half of the town looks at the other half like criminals. And their efforts to lobby the county for some kind of carve-out in the law have largely failed. And we were lobbying for small farmers. We didn't want big commercial, industrial, or corporate farming up here. We just wanted the people who have been doing it all along, especially those with legal collectives, to be included in this new paradigm. And they, they went out of their way and, and, and shut it down. But like I said way, way, way back in the beginning, the only reason anyone is in this mess is because cannabis was legalized in California in 1996 and then again in 2016. People like Ronnie, Kendall, and their neighbors were living between two legalizations and feel left behind by the newest one. So is it cultural? Is it political? Is it nimbyism? Is I say D all of the above. And I don't think it's exclusive to ANSA. This is Armando Gudino, policy manager for the Drug Policy Alliance in California. He's also one of the folks responsible for drafting Prop 64, which created the new cannabis regulations that eventually replaced the old. Armando says the 2016 vote sought to make things much clearer. But naturally, that would upset people who made good money off of the confusion. People like Ronnie and Kendall. When you have the Wild West and all of a sudden Wyatt Earp comes in there and he says, we're going to get the law in here. And I'm not characterizing the others as, you know, anything. Not all of them were, I think, nefarious in their intent. But truth of the matter is that with regulation, you lose a lot of the flexibility that one enjoyed in a free market economy in every sense of the word. But that's not all Prop 64 did in 2016. Armando says it made several cannabis crimes obsolete, dropping arrest rates and automatically erasing convictions for certain past offenses. Hearing you talk about the way that Prop 64 has taken away a lot of drug enforcement, you know, our story is about the drug enforcement that kind of happens on the back end, right, with the, the attempt to suppress the illicit market. Do you see kind of a proportional increase in that kind of enforcement since Prop 64 passed? The kinds of raids, busts, things like that? At the local level, there was some jurisdictions that were increasing enforcement. There were some jurisdictions in the case of Los Angeles who had dedicated resources to an enforcement unit. From cannabis taxes, as I understand it, right? 
Yes, yeah. in some cases, absolutely. But Armando says the state is not just trying to force people out of the illicit market, but also offer them pathways into the regulated one. In fact, in California, there have been resources dedicated to provide an infrastructure for social equity for those impacted by the war on drugs, including those previously with criminal convictions associated with marijuana sales, drug sales, and things of that nature. In California, towns, cities, and counties regulate those resources. That's because of Prop 64, which bolstered local control when it comes to pot regulation. Local control also means those same towns, cities, or counties can opt out of legal cannabis altogether. They can say no grows, no dispensaries, no nothing. And they can enforce that any way they see fit. And little did we know that many cities said, nope, we're going to opt out per the provision that says we can opt out. And all that opting out means it really is just up to where you live. Anza, where Ronnie lives, is in unincorporated Riverside County. And the county has banned cannabis cultivation in unincorporated areas. Actually, they even went further, creating new zoning that explicitly prohibits cannabis on commercial farmland. For holdovers like Ronnie, they can either move or close up shop. On the one hand, you have folks who say, look, I want to operate the same way I've operated for 20, 30 years, in isolation, without government intrusion. And then you have others who say, look, I'm going to move to California as soon as I can and try and meet the, the, the residency requirements and bring in capital. And I'm going to go and, and, and take full advantage of the legal infrastructure that is now available per the foundations of capitalism, long live America, blah, blah, blah. Basically, Armando says you have nothing to worry about so long as you play by the rules. But at the risk of sounding like a broken record, that costs money. It costs money to move to a place specifically because they have cannabis-friendly policies. To say nothing of all of the other costs. The cannabis industry in California, much like most other places, is a game for people who already have a nice chunk of change. You know, we have these highly regulated industries like tobacco, like alcohol, but there are still these carve-outs where somebody could say, make craft beer at home and sell it at a farmer's market, or like make wine at home and sell it in a farmer's market. I'm wondering if you could ever see anything like that in the legal cannabis world, because I think this is kind of what our subject is looking for. I mean, I, I suspect that somebody in government would say, look, there already is a carve-out. You can grow up to six plants at home. You can barter. You can give, you can do a whole lot of other things. Now, if you want to sell, every other product in the state of California, including cannabis now, is consistent with state law. If you want to sell, you need a license. No, I'm not, I'm not going to this year. Okay. They got a letter they sent out that says, you know, you have a history of cannabis farming, and if you do it this year, we're going to take your farm under the... Civil asset forfeiture, right? Yeah. Ronnie is only growing indoors this year. No more fields of swaying cannabis plants. They might as well be big neon signs that say, call the police on me. If he were to go back to growing outside, he would risk losing it all. Civil asset forfeiture is a police power that basically allows them to sue you for a certain sum of money and then to take any assets you've got that are equal to that amount. 
And I know somebody they did it to, and they gave them a civil laugh forfeiture of 600000 and their farm was only worth four. <laughs> so were they just out on the street after that? They took the house, everything? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. That is scary. Yeah, so I'm not going to do that outside this year. I'm not going to chance that. By this point, maybe you're wondering why you should feel bad for a guy like Ronnie. But if he feels like he has few other options, then it makes you wonder whether legalization is doing what it's supposed to do. Because really, here are his choices. Go legal. To do this, he'll need millions of dollars in startup costs. He'll need to compete with who knows how many others for the few pieces of available farmland in California, no less. And he'll need to be able to sell enough weed annually to pay the incredibly high overhead, compliance costs, private security, business expenses that he can never legally write off. On top of all of that, the product he would sell would be taxed at 25%. His competitors on the illicit market could beat that price every time. The other option is don't go legal. Continue selling on the illicit market, where California's consumers are more likely to buy anyways. Rake in more money per sale than you would in any dispensary. Take advantage of cheaper labor and lower overhead. No need to bother hiring accountants or lawyers. To someone like Ronnie, the choice is clear. Make no mistake, there are people out there making bank on California's legal weed market. But that doesn't change the fact that it still cannot outcompete the illicit market. So if you can't replace it and you can't erase it, what does California do? If criminalization isn't working, what's left other than compromise? Could California have some kind of carve-out for subsistence pot growers, big enough to include the Ronnies of the world, but small enough to keep out organized crime? It's, uh, it's, a one, it's one of the bedrooms in my house. It's like a 10 by 12 bedroom, and it works real well for a nursery. Because you heard the guy. He's not about to stop anytime soon. On the next episode of On Something, we zero in on Colorado, our home state. The first state to legalize recreational weed in 2012. Except people are still in prison for it. You know, you, f- you feel like it's unfair. I mean, it's, it's legalized now. And I'm wondering why aren't these people looking at my case? Why aren't they seeing it? Seeing what, you know, I'm in here for, for cannabis. Next time, the long, hard battle for freedom in a state where weed is legal. On Something is a labor of love. Reported by me, Anne-Marie Awad, along with Stephanie Lai and Rebecca Romberg. This episode was written by me. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Rebecca Romberg, Christy Totten, and Matthew Simonson. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped to make this episode possible in the show notes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members, 
Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org.